and discussing the advantages of having a plurality of elders. So if you could turn with me to Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 12. And I'm going to read through it once. Starting in verse 9, it says, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not, and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And, for, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not easily broken. The central truth of this text is that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 12 in order to teach people the wisdom of working together as friends. Now, the word itself, the title of the book comes from uh, a Latin word in the first verse. Ecclesiastes, it basically has the same root word as the church, right? Cleveland, right? That root word for the church is signifying that what's happening in this book is that someone, they call it the preacher, is addressing an assembly in the Old Testament. So you have an individual who's addressing an assembly. And if you've ever read the book, it's a book, it's, it's part of the wisdom literature. And, it, and the gentleman who believes to be Solomon is giving people wisdom. And what he's really trying to do is he's really trying to show the vanity, how vain several aspects of life are. Like, you know, people who just pursue wealth, people who just pursue power, political power. He's just showing how all of that is vain. So it's interesting that we'll find this text in Ecclesiasticus. Why is this useful? Well, because of all the things that he does in the book, one of the few things he ever, he ever calls vain is friendship, the type of friendship that you see in this passage. And we're going to see how this kind of provides a nice little model for the four different points that we're going to treat today in our text. So, before we do that, the quick question that we're going to ask is, what is a pastor? Right? This, what, what does a pastor do? Some people see a pastor as a motivator. Some people see a pastor as a CEO. Some people see him as an employee. Some people see him as a counselor. But as we hinted towards in our last sermon, a pastor is a leader of the church. And we're going to look at the type of labor that that pastor does. We had this theme of laboring before. Remember, like like a mom and daughter labors and gives birth to babies. We see that this gentleman right is laboring. These men are laboring within the church, and we're going to look in more detail of what that labor looks like. So let's look at our first verse. Now, before we get to our first verse, I'm going to tell you guys four different parts of the story. I mentioned this story earlier. But you remember, you can recall that I had gone on this amazing, like, row venture, right? So I decided to put some pictures up, and I just want to give you guys a sensation because I think it will really help us understand the advantages of a plurality of elders. So, looking at these pictures, and the first picture where you can see there are a bunch of kids, right, a bunch of boys, really excited, having no idea what they were getting themselves into. And we were, you know, going out into this journey in the middle of nowhere. Well, after that, after getting lost, after having to have our guide come and rescue us and help us find our location, we finally arrived, and all it was was this wooden little, you know, this wooden screen area in the middle of the woods. So the next morning, I forgot to bring a propane tank. So we had to cook these pinchos. Do you guys know what pinchos are? I don't know if they have pinchos in the Philippines. The pinchos is like kebabs. Hispanics call it you know, pinchos because you literally pinchos thing, you know? So, um, so we want we had to cook this because we didn't get any ice. Of course, we didn't need ice, and we had to cook the meat that we had. So, what we ended up doing is we ended up splitting into these kind of like three little packs that we had. So, I went in there, being a survivor man, I went in there and I started a fire with um, a lighter, some some wet wood, and some, uh, some toilet paper. Right. While I was doing that, another gentleman, right, Joel, is actually in the back, is out there gathering all the different you know uh, twigs and, and the logs and stuff like that. And then as he was doing that, George, the gentleman who we were celebrating uh, for his bachelor, uh, bachelor party, was preparing the feast. Now, how is that relevant to what we're talking about with the plurality of pastors? Well, what you see here is labor. We each had these different tasks. We each had these advantages. And because we were able to bring these advantages together, we had the most amazing feature that I've ever had in my life. So with that noted, and keeping that image in mind, turn with me to verse 9 of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. The first verse there in our segment reads as follows. Two are better than one, 
because they have a good reward for their labor. So let's dig a little deeper into what this labor looks like. You kind of mentioned it a little bit in the past sermon, but I want to work it out a little bit more before we proceed in the next sermon to what the literal qualifications look like. And the first thing we want to know is that in the Bible, this office of pastor is referred to as a leader. Now, we mentioned some former examples of leaders in our society, right? A CEO is a leader, right? I mean, a counselor, a motivational speaker, but a pastor is not those. No, a pastor is not an employer. He's this type of biblical leader that we're going to dig into. So initially, we find verses like this, and as being in this type of contemporary society, this type of stuff makes us a little uncomfortable. So I'm going to read here from Hebrews 13, 17. And it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your soul, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So initially what we see there is that we're called in the assembly, right, in the church, to go and obey and submit to our leaders. Now that makes us a little uncomfortable, right? I mean, what do we usually associate words like obey or submit to? We associate that maybe to our boss or slavery, right? So we get kind of iffy about that, and, and, and especially in American, American society, we're always trying to pursue like this notion of freedom. We want to be free, and, and if we can go out there and pursue our pleasures, or if we can go and get rich, you know, we can experience true, free, true freedom. And especially today, you'll see that there's a rise in juvenile delinquency. Because you have all these young people who just want to be free. But they don't understand that that concept of freedom is not freedom at all. But in reality, that concept of freedom is slavery. And you can actually find freedom in submission. I know, that sounds like a bizarre concept, right? But what we're going to see is that that's true according to Scripture. I mean, just picture it as parents, right? Your children are called to obey and to submit to you. Now, does that mean that you're a tyrant and that you're supposed to abuse them? Of course not. The type of obedience and submission as we've been working on is for their own good. So I'm going to give you a picture of what false freedom looks like. And this actually comes in the verses right above of our central text. In Ecclesiastes, verse 8, it reads as follows. It's describing this man who's trying to pursue the false form of freedom. It says, one person who has no other, either son or brother... Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So Solomon in Ecclesiastes is listing all these things that are vanity, and he attributes this as being vain. Does anyone know what vain means? I mean, it's not necessarily like, well, you know, when I look at myself in the mirror, I'm like, you're gorgeous. Yeah, that's a form of vanity. But, but the word vain kind of gives you the image of a mist. You know, can you grab a mist? No. It's something that you can never grasp. And he's saying that the pursuit of riches, you know, you have this picture of this man working just for riches and for his own pleasure, and Solomon calls it vain. And then right after this is where we get into our central passage about friendship and about the advantages of working together. But I want to return back to Hebrews 13, 17. So we have this first part here that says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your soul. That's a pretty great responsibility, right? Did you see what their task is? What is their task? They're looking over your soul, right? And who do you think they're reporting to? Well, they're reporting to the chief shepherd that we're going we're to get to later. So they have this task to oversee, to watch over your soul, just like a parent has the task to watch over their children. But that still doesn't ask us, that, that still doesn't answer the question, well, what is this leading look like? So we have an understanding that the assembly is supposed to submit and obey their leaders in the Lord, right? and that we're not called to go at it alone, and that this type of relationship, the, you know, the type of model that the church has given us, is for our own freedom, but what does leading in the church look like? Alright? So, if we look at a couple verses earlier in Hebrews, we read as follows. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of life, or the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So, what are the key images that we have there on a description of what leading looks like? Well, leading, one, 
involves the speaking of the word of God, the proclamation of the word, the teaching of the word. That's one of the ways that you lead. That's, the, that's one of the primary ways a pastor leads. Is he leads by proclaiming the word of God. In addition, we have that, that second sentence. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. We have, we have a one sentence, you know, a, a phrase that kind of sums this up. Anyone, anyone know which one I'm talking about? Practice what you preach, right? So the pastor needs to practice, but he also needs to preach it. But he needs to practice what he's preaching. And one of the ways that we see leadership looks like in the Bible is that you have a proclamation and then you have a modeling of what is proclaimed. So what we find in these verses is that leading is by example. So I'm just going to read a verse here in, uh, in John, chapter, John chapter 13. You don't have to turn there. I just want to read it to you really quick. It says, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. I remember when I started here, wanted to kind of put to pen my philosophy on leadership. So what I wrote about was the washing of, of the feet. Because in my mind, that is the ideal image of what leadership, what Christian leadership looks like. It looks like servant humility, right? That's what it looks like, the washing of the leader, washing and, and, and caring for those who have been, uh, those in whom he's responsible for. So Jesus is telling the disciples that they're supposed to copy him, they're supposed to emulate him, they're supposed to, that he's supposed to exemplify leading. He is, the, he is the model, he is the example of what a leader looks like. And what we find then in our second point is that what this leading looks like is shepherding. So I love to pull this image out of a shepherd because I think it's, it's I mean, you find it all throughout the Bible. Everywhere from David to Jesus, they are the shepherds, with Jesus as the chief shepherd. Now what we look and find in 1 Peter 5, 2 to 4, actually we're going to read through uh, verses 2 3 first, is that a shepherd is an example to the flock. So in, in verse 2 in 1 Peter chapter 5, it says, and this is, um, this is the author talking to elders, the author is telling elders what leadership looks like. This is that sermon that I preached a while back about the bosses. Same verse. And it's explaining to them what leading in the church looks like. And it looks like shepherding. And this is what he says to the elders. He says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. There's that word oversight, which is our word for overseer or bishop. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So the image here is that leadership, <laughs> taking care of the sheep, the flock, it looks like a shepherd. It doesn't look like a cowboy. You know? You're not trying to ride the sheep into the pen, but you're trying to lead the sheep with your voice. You're calling them by name. But what are other things that a shepherd does? So a shepherd's not only modeling the behavior for for the sheep, but a shepherd tends to his flock. Right? The shepherd tends to his flock. So in James chapter 5, verse 14, he's writing to the elders, and he's saying, Is anyone among you sick? And then if anyone is among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So, picture here you have your shepherd and you have a sick sheep. What does the shepherd do? The shepherd takes care of the sheep. The shepherd nurses the sheep, whether it's a baby lamb, and the shepherd has to carry as he takes the flock out to pasture, or it's an injured sheep. The shepherd makes sure that the sheep is nursed back to health. And if a sheep falls astray and gets lost, we see in John 10, and I believe 15, that Jesus does not allow any of the sheep to go astray. So the model of our shepherd also shows us is not only does he tend to the sick, not only does he go and find the ones that are lost, but, as we see in this next point, he protects the flock. And who does, who does the shepherd protect the flock from? The wolves, right? The wolves. 
So in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 29, on the bottom there, it reads as follows. This is, this is Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian, the Ephesian elders. Pay attention, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made the overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And as you'll see, if you've read through the letters of the New Testament, almost in every single letter, one thing that repeats itself over and over and over again is these are these false teachers. So, a pastor leads by example, and that leading is shepherding. So my question to you is, in that shepherding, he has the responsibility to care for you know, the sick sheep, to help the baby sheep, and also to protect them from wolves. So how does he do all of that? Well, recall our past sermon. What was the word that was attached to pastor? Was it? Teacher. Remember when we translated when we translated the verse from the Greek, it was pastor teacher or teaching pastors. I mean the idea there is that the act of shepherding is tied very closely to the act of teaching. So the way that he protects the flock from the wolves and the way that he tends you know, to their wounds is not only visiting them you know, during the week at their house, but proclaiming the word. That's his chief responsibility. And he protects from the false ideas of the world like that false idea of freedom by proclaiming the word. So a pastor as teacher is what a pastor as shepherd looks like, and a pastor as shepherd is what leading by example looks like. So let's look really quick to what uh, a pastor as teacher involves. And uh, we'll read this verse out here. This is from 2 Timothy 4, 1-2, and it reads as follows. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So our shepherd is primarily a teacher, and he's called to always be ready to proclaim the gospel. So, the next part of our little story, you can flash forward. This is pastors help share each other's burdens. So, picking up where we left off, we had this wonderful breakfast. I mean, can you just breakfast? It can't get any better. I also put popcorn on there. It's amazing. So we're all ready, and we had some Cuban coffee, and we're ready to go out and fight, you know, the water. And no idea what we were getting ourselves into. And we wake up and talk about because it's kind of funny. Talk about like vanity in Ecclesiastes. <laughs> what is the first thing that I see in the morning? Is I just see mist, right? You see all this mist, almost as if it's foreshadowing. But we jump on the water. And out we go, and you can't really see here, but if you look really close, that giant thing right there is a poisonous snake. And it was like the size of my whole body. So in addition to poisonous snakes all over the place, we had wasp nests this big everywhere. And it was terrible because you're in a tiny little creek, and as you're like rowing around, and you're going under all these trees, and there's these wasp nests. And if you touch that thing, it's over. You can't get away. But one of my favorite parts to give you the idea of sharing each other's burdens, we, we devised a couple of tricks because we started to get tired. One of the tricks is that we would call for an armada, which comes from a Spanish word of um, basically a company of flock, a flock of ships that are armed, except we weren't really armed with anything but our stupidity. So we, we had this thing called an armada, and whenever we would call for an armada, the, the other two vessels would get around the big vessel, and that big boy right there, George, would grab onto the two vessels so we could kind of take a breather, cut some oranges, and stuff like that. In addition to an armada, you could see George's canoe basically was carrying everything. <laughs> he, was, he was carrying our burdens, literally. But we, we, we paid him back. Whenever he would get really tired, we would take this rope and we would hook this rope up to both of our, or we would, we would actually grab onto our kayaks and we would just paddle away or we would tie them so we could tell him a little bit. But my favorite image of sharing each other's burden is when we got to this giant tree, because there were trees had fallen all over this you know, small stream that they called Devil's Gut of all things, right? So we get to this giant tree, and this tree had just cut through 
the stream and there was no way to get through it, right? So what we had to do is we had to jump, and you couldn't go from the banks because it's all muddy about this high. So we had to jump on this on this tree that's floating on the water and pull these these kayaks and these canoes over the log. And as we were doing that, George and I were getting attacked by a hornet. So George is there defending the hornet as I'm pulling the boat across. So with that image there, images there, sharing each other's burdens, let's turn to the next segment of the sermon. This is Ecclesiastes verses 10 through 11. And they read as follows. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellows. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? So one of the things that a plurality of pastors helps do is share the burden of ministry. And I just want you to pay attention. I want you to hear some of these statistics. And and they're going to seem very real for you guys because you guys have experienced this. But according to the New York Times, back in 2010, the writer makes this claim. Members of the clergy now suffer from obesity, hypertension, and depression at rates higher than most Americans. In the last decade, their use of antidepressants has risen, while their life expectancy has fallen. Many would change jobs if they could. And this is from a book called Pastors at Greater Risk. It's not on there, but I'm just going to read you some of these statistics. 23% of pastors have been fired or pressured to resign at least once in their careers. 25% don't know where to turn when they have a family or personal conflict. 33% felt burnt out in the first five years of ministry. 45% of pastors say that they've experienced depression or burnout to the extent that they needed to take a leave of absence from ministry. 50% feel unable to meet the needs of the job. 56% of pastors' wives say that they have no close friends. 70% don't have any close friends. 75% report severe stress causing anguish, worry, bewilderment, anger, depression, fear, and alienation. 80% of pastors say that they have insufficient time with their spouse. 90% feel unqualified or poorly prepared for ministry. 90% feel uh, work more than 50 hours a week, not even considering that now we have smartphones, so it's really a 24-7 task. And 94% feel under pressure to have a perfect family. This resulted with over 1,500 pastors leaving their ministries each month due to burnout, conflict, or moral failure. So pastors help share each other's burdens. One of the ways they do this is they help share the responsibilities of ministry. One of the problems with the pressure of being a pastor is that you're expected, think of all the things you're expected to be. You're expected to be a good preacher. You're expected to be a counselor. You're expected to be a church administrator. You're expected to be a church writer. You're expected you know, to do a Bible study, to do discipleship, to be an evangelist. And what ends up happening, because the model of a the, of the pastor in the 20th century and late towards the 19th century that developed is pastor as CEO, as business owner. But that was never the model that we see in the New Testament, or the model for early Baptists in the United States. But a number of plurality of pastors helps diversify the skills. So you can think, I mean, think of what's going on in this church. I had some skill in a parliamentary procedure, right? I, I was the chief justice at my university. I never, ever thought that I would ever use that again, right? But that was used here in this church. But at the same time, we have people who are really good at discipleship. Think about all those things complement one another. Because not everybody has all those talents. Some people are good at discipleship. Some people are good at proclamation, preaching. Some people are good at evangelism. Some people are good at curriculum. And a plurality of pastors helps bring all these things together. It helps bring about balance. In addition to helping diversify talents, it also helps with the family pressures. So you can imagine, not only would it be difficult if we expected of our pastor to do all those things that I mentioned, you can only imagine what it must be like on their family. So when you have a plurality of pastors, it aids the pastor in giving more attention to his family or you know, academic responsibilities, etc. So in addition with helping share responsibilities, it also really helps with conflict. All right? Think about that. A lot of times, one of the reasons that pastors get fired, that 25% number, whatever it was, 
one of the reasons is because you get into these scenarios where you have like, this full professional pastor, conflict arrives in the church, and then what ends up happening is people painted as being the pastor versus the congregation. And who is the mediator there? They already have a perception that the pastor is an employee. So what ends up happening is you have this conflict. But if you have a plurality of pastors, if you have multiple pastors, those pastors can step in as mediators. And then when you've got a plurality of pastors come forward and say, hey, your behavior is wrong, God has given us the gift of church discipline for a reason, right? then people are more willing to say, well, you know what, maybe it is me. Maybe I do have some unseen sin. Maybe it just isn't because this individual has some type of grievance against me. So in addition with helping share responsibilities and helping with conflict, it also helped provide an example of, of more of what the church looks like. You, you ever ask a friend, hey, what church do you go to? And their response is, oh, I go to Pastor XYZ's church. I go to Pastor Bob's church. I always thought that was really weird because it's not Pastor Bob's church. It's the Lord's church. It's Christ's church. So when you have a plurality of pastors, it helps emphasize that image there that this is Christ's church. But in addition, it, per, it portrays a good image to everybody sitting in uh, in the assembly and the youth in the assembly. Because a lot of times people get this perception that the pastor is a profession. That the pastor is not a profession, the pastor is a calling. So when you have this plurality of pastors, people say, hey, that's something that I can aspire to. I mean, I don't have to go and be a full-time you know, a, a full pastor who's staff. But I can feel called to the ministry, and I can serve. So even young people can go and say, hey, you know, I, I can still be a lawyer, or, you know, to be more New Testament-y, I can still be a tent maker and still have this calling, my call ethic. So it helps with the share of responsibilities, it helps with conflicts, and it helps provide a more biblical model, a more biblical example of what the church is and what the church offices are. So, part three, pastors help keep each other accountable. So, sharing burdens is not the same thing as keeping each other accountable. So, we're going to go to the next stage of our story here, of our grow venture. So, after we got through this log, we started paddling away, and of course, we get we lost. Of course, we had the mask in a bag that we didn't access. But we didn't have propane, we didn't have ice, and we didn't have mats. So we get to this fork in the road, and we decide to go right. And we get lost for like three to six miles. And when we get lost, I mean, it was it was just cinematic because as we're getting more and more lost, the water is getting more and more steady. It's getting more and more black, more and more murky. More and more creepy. You know? <laughs> I mean, look at this tree, man. Look at this tree. That is a creepy tree. Like, like I'm thinking like a giant monster to that tree down and he's going to come get me. Because remember, this is in the middle of nowhere. Like, you can see, here we are. At this point, we're really, really, really tired. It's just like 12 miles in. <clears throat> and we go down only to find out that we were pretty lost. And we were in a swamp. Not the swamp that we were supposed to be in. And we had a temptation to get a cornfield sitting right there. So the entire time that we were paddling, like you really can't just walk on shore. You were in your boat for hours and hours and hours on it. There was this cornfield, and we could have, you know, put our tent out and slept. And and my associates really wanted to stop. Okay? They really wanted to stop. Because we were just tired. I mean, our arms were felt like they were severed off our bodies, poor George was pushing all that stuff. So they were really, really, really tempted to put up in this cornfield, but I was like, no. We gotta make it. We gotta do it. I mean there's this there's this you know mystical platform in the middle of a mangrove swamp that, that we had reserved and it was just waiting for us in the middle of nowhere and that's where we were supposed to go. It doesn't matter if we were lost. So I played as I said the other day I played the cheerleader. You know, we can do it, you know, telling them. And they just hated me. I was like, what's going on? So I'm trying to figure out any way to distract them. And Joel, Joel is a, he, he's, he's a, he's a trained thespian, a trained actor. 
So I was like, you know, George, a joke. Give us some monologues. Sing us some songs. And then I'm, and then I'm turning to George and saying, hey, George, tell me how you meet your fiance. Kind of do anything to get us distracted. Well, it, it worked until like we had this crisis point where it started getting dark. Because not only did we lose the propane thing and the ice and the mats, but we lost our flashlight. <laughs> I know. So, so it gets dark, and that is that is the point where I, I'm seriously scared at that point because I have a daughter, and I'm just like, I, I thought that we may die out there because it's that. I mean, we got bats and snakes and hornets, and you just can't see, and we just get to the point where we just had to decide: Are we really going to just keep going for it? I mean, I had three percent battery life on my phone, and I looked the G the GPS, and we were a couple miles away. But our platform was in the middle of a swamp. So I'm, I'm thinking, well, Leonard, I mean, are you wrong? Should, should we stop? But like a bunch of uh, boys were like, no, let's, let's keep going. Well, we were blind. We couldn't see anything. And you got bats the size of your hand flying through your face. And I'm singing the Lord's Prayer because that's the only song I know. <laughs> and, and a guy thought that we were a bunch of meth heads because I was singing the Lord's Prayer. And he comes up to us with his hand on his gun. And we find out that he's a police officer. And the police officer was so kind to give us a flashlight and say, hey, what you guys did get lost? My friends did that last year. You guys are almost there. You guys are only like two miles away. So we said, all right, let's do it. And we get another crisis point. As it's wholly dark, we have flashlights in our mouths as we're rowing to see where we're going. We get to this point where there's another two turns. And this one turn over here, it's a, it's a, the, the creek's opening up. And then this one turn over here, this blackness is just all these really cows. And we're just like, is, is that it? I mean, we got said that we're going to have to go into an entry and just keep going and we feel like you're you know, in the wrong place and you're lost and going further. So, at that point, we have to ask ourselves, are we going to keep each other accountable? And that's when we get to our next verse. This is verse number 12. And verse number 12 reads as follows. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So, pastors help keep each other accountable. And how is keeping each other accountable different from keeping, uh, from carrying each other's burdens? Well, burdens are these things that you that you have to deal with that you suffer from that are external. But keeping each other accountable is making sure that everything is proper internally. So one, it helps protect from error. How does it help protect from error? Well, pastors can get prideful, right? And everybody has blind spots. That's why, you know, my wife is so amazing. It's because I would never, I, I would never notice the things I do wrong, like saying S at the end of, of uh, different books of the Bible. But my wife will, and my wife will tell me. She sees my blind spots. Well, the same thing with the plurality of elders. It helps people see their blind spots. So you may remember Peter. Peter was confronted by Paul when he didn't want to eat with, with the Gentiles in Galatians chapter 2. But in addition to helping with pastor's pride or with pastor's weak spots, it also um, provides a constant reminder that a pastor is not above the law, but is subject to his fellow elders, is subject to his fellow pastors. Because a pastor, as you can imagine, if you honestly buy into the fact that there's a spiritual order going on, which there is, if you honestly buy into that fact, where do you think most of the battles are going to occur? Almost before every single major sermon I've ever given, I've experienced like weird supernatural battles. I mean, this weird stuff that just comes out of nowhere. And you're like, what the heck is this? Where in the world is this? Why is this happening? I mean, did, if anyone went with us in the New York trip, you may have remembered, you know, in that New York missions trip, I just didn't want to talk to anybody. I had this random bout of sobbing, and we would go door to door in this. Um, this Jamaican neighborhood, I found a guy who wanted to tell me how amazing Castro is, and I'm Cuban, and I mean, drug dealers, it was just terrible, but we had all this fruit that came out of it. Well, one of the things is it helps keep pastors accountable, because they're one of the main people that are coming under this type of spiritual warfare. But in addition to protecting them from error, it also helps promote maturity, maturity and godliness. <coughs> So this is one of our, my favorite verses here in, uh, in Proverbs uh, 27-17, and this is one that you guys have probably heard before. As iron sharpens iron, 
so one man sharpens another. So you have this relationship where pastors are investing into each other's lives, helping sharpen them, helping train them. But in addition to that, you have this fostering of godliness, you know, this working together, keeping each other accountable, because the reality is, as a pastor, you can't just walk up to a member of the church and be like, hey, I'm really suffering from pride this week. So here in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 to 13, it reads, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So just like what this passage is saying is that a plurality of pastors prevents these pastors from themselves wandering off. So you have the image of us growing together and keeping each other accountable and making sure that we can quit. Because I guarantee you, if it was any of us by ourselves, we would have definitely stuck. The only way we were able to make it is because one was carrying all the burdens, the other one was keeping each other accountable, and we were all doing this together. So that leads to our fourth and final part of our story. So, we left off at uh, the different room paths at night. And we made the decision that we were going to go through the lily pads. Georgia almost got stuck. And we managed to push through. And I want you to picture your mind all these trees, like these mangrove trees, and a very small black opening. Again, middle of nowhere. And we descend into this blackness, and there's just trees coming out of the water, and the more and more we row, the tighter and tighter and tighter it gets, until it's literally about from here to the pulpit, and we're swerving through trees in this pitch blackness. But then, all of a sudden, we found this platform. We just made it sticking out of the water. And we're like a dog. Boom. Run, run up on this thing, jump off, kiss the ground, you know, pull our canoes up, and we found it. And what was the reward for our labor? Well, you can kind of see it here. I mean, you can see, here's the walkway right above the water. You can't even see how deep this water is. And you can see the trees just sticking out all over the place. And we go in, and it's just a platform suspended. It's a platform. And it's beautiful. I mean, this kind of hints at how beautiful it was. You really got to be there to hear the screeching owls and all that stuff. But you would think, like, oh, our adventure was over, right? We made it. No, it just started because then the heavens opened up and rain began to pour. <laughs> and before we had, before it was sheltered. So, I mean, it was sheltered. We had spiders the size of our hand. But I would prefer to hang out with the spiders than the downpour that we experienced. So what did our night look like? Well, we slept in puddles, cold puddles. It was three young men who had been growing for 20 miles, you can imagine what we smelled like, and everything was wet, everything was wet, no warm food, and remember in, in the uh, passage in Ecclesiastes about keeping warm, you remember that, it said, it said you know, uh, that two people laying together keep warm, well, <laughs> I was but to live, I was, I was literally curling up against Joel, So there we were, and I want you to keep that image in mind before we're about to depart, because we're going to turn to an important question towards the end. Before that, we still have one more thing to say about the plurality of pastors and how it benefits, how it helps, how it provides for each other, and that point is that pastors share in their equality. So, verse 12, which we read earlier, we're going to read it again, but we're going to place a different focus. We first place the focus in that first, those first two clauses. It said, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand. So you know, you're going to fight someone, you may lose that fight. But if there's two of you, 
you know, you may survive. That was the point before, the accountability point. But now, so now check this out. What we add here at the end, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now that's going to serve as an image. We're going to return to that towards the end. So just keeping that in mind, let's turn to our first point about pastors sharing in their quality. This is the more practical stuff. The stuff that uh, more applies towards what this church in the direction that it will go will look like in terms of your pastor. And by the way, this church had plurality of pastors before. Me and, and Pastor Richard, that's the plurality of pastors. We just had different terms to designate. We made we made a, an error in seeing like in, in calling one you know an associate pastor and the other one a senior pastor when those type of titles don't exist in scripture. We've seen that I mean it's just it's a quality. They just may have different functions. So our first point is that pastors have equal authority. They have the same qualifications, and next week's sermon is going to focus on the church and the qualifications of the pastor. I'm going to look at that today. But they share in the same qualifications. They have a share in the same responsibilities. They have to be able to teach. And they also share in the authority. One is just as authoritative as the other, even though one may be a staff member and the other one may be part-time, and the other one may be unpaid, when you have this diversity, well, like you'll see with Paul, or you'll see with some of the elders that are being supported by their local assembly. So, we'll see in Scripture that they have equal authority, shared authority, but what we notice is that even though they have equal authority, sometimes we find, and I'll summarize it with this phrase, the first among equals. The first among equals. In other words, there's this idea. Think back to the 12 disciples. Remember that with the 12 disciples, Jesus uh, brought three out to give them like, special attention? Does anyone remember who they were? Who, who do we have? Yeah. We have John, right? We have, we have uh, Peter and we have James. And he brought them out for like special attention. And did he bring anyone out of those three out for even more special attention? Peter. That's where uh, Roman Catholics will interpret the verse that uh, when, when Jesus is talking to Peter and he says, Upon this rock I will build my church. Roman Catholics have interpreted that to, be, to mean that Peter was the first pope. But what we find in the New Testament is there's no such term as pope. And in reality, Peter didn't have any authority above the other, above the other um, apostles. Right? As we just saw with, with uh, Paul, when Paul goes and rebukes Peter for not eating with the Gentiles. He didn't have a special role, and he didn't have a unique um, authority that was elevated by a position. He didn't have, you know, special attire. He didn't have, you know, a, a special name. That they were all the apostles. But, so why did Peter have this privileged role? Why was he the first among equals? Well, it, it was because you know he had this more teachable spirit and this more authoritative demeanor that just comes out of experience. In other words, when you have these pastors that come together. One of them may have, you know, um, these natural talents that attributes itself to being the guy who preaches day to day. In other words, plurality of pastors doesn't mean that you don't have someone who's full in the full class staff. But it also doesn't mean that you do have someone. It can be either one. It just really depends on what, what the church wants. There's advantages to having someone who's a full-time staff member, and there's disadvantages. But even with either of those, the understanding is that they're still all equal. Right? You don't elevate one above the other just because you know he is focusing on children, or he's focusing on youth, or he's focusing on discipleship. They all share that the first among equals may be the person who's preaching in and out. So what makes what makes what does that mean first among equal in terms of this preaching? Well. You find this verse in 1 Timothy 5.17 that says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So double honor doesn't mean that he has a different type of eldership, but that he may be the one who is gifted in teaching and preaching above the others. So what he does every week is he proclaims the word. And the church decides then, because the Bible says, Paul says that he has a right to being supported for his, for his preaching. He's a right to be supported to. He just, he just didn't uh, you know, use that right because he's supporting himself by, um, by, by his tending. But you may have it so that one person who 
his preaching week in and week out gets supported and becomes a full-time staff member of the church because of his proclamation. And it has benefits and it has risks. So, some of the benefits of first among equals, well, when you have someone who's full-time, you can imagine if, if you're working, if you have a full-time job outside of the church, it's going to be really hard to do a lot of things. I mean, you guys kind of have seen that like with me recently. You know, I just have a full-time PhD, full-time uh, job, and then I have another job at school, and like time gets really done. So when you have someone who you put on staff, who's a, who's a pastor, some people authority, one of the advantages there is that you know, he has a whole week to put a message together. He has a whole week to do visitation. He has a whole week to do these different tasks. In addition, you have the accountability that I mentioned. Right? They can keep each other accountable. Maybe that person among equals, his special gift is teaching, and that's what he does. The other pastors free him up to focus on teaching. And we're going to learn that the deacon, one of the reasons that the deacons came together and asked, the seven proto-deacons, is to, uh, uh, to free the elders to preach. So I mean, you can think in this church. Imagine, and you can you can kind of see how much how, how much how many advantages we have here at the church because the pastor isn't organizing the, the music ministry and the children's curriculum and the youth lessons and the events. You've noticed that members just do this. I mean, frees them up. Deacons doing house visits. People leave Bible studies. It frees them up to do what's most important of a shepherd, which is teaching, proclamation. But there are also some challenges when you have a person of equal. And again, person of equal means that the elders are equal, but maybe one is first because he's leading the other elders in a vision. Or the church maybe wants to put him a full-time staff member. This would be the result of like the pastoral service committee. If you were to find someone who's full-time. And again, you can have that. Again, some challenges is that you're going to have to Sunday, 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 and then in out, in out, in out. And one of the, the dangers that can arise from that is that the church, even though the church teaches that pastors are equal, the church may see him as being a So it's his responsibility. Like if you, you may have noticed last sermon, I wanted to make sure that one pastor came up and did the um, the offering and the, and the opening, and then I preached the sermon, and then towards the end, another pastor came and did the communion. And that's one way you can kind of like check that and develop this type of culture, right? Um, where where you have this uh, check to that pastor being seen as more authoritative. But another challenge is that the other the other pastors may get the impression that they don't have to that they're not responsible for the whole congregation. Right? They may get get the impression that they're not responsible for the congregation. That's the guy who's full time. But as we see with our very first verse, the elders are the ones that are going to have to be held to, to account by the Lord. So, with that, we can uh, draw ourselves to a conclusion. We have one more image to focus on, but to repeat the central truth of our text today was that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 12 in order to teach people the wisdom of working together as friends. The central truth of the sermon was that today we learned that the plurality of pastors provides a great source of help and accountability to the pastors, and that this is designed to bring the pastor's peace. We saw that by discussing pastors and their duties, leading, shepherding, teaching, and we also saw, um, we also discussed how pastors help share each other's burdens. Think there of the image of my friend George carrying all the stuff in his canoe. And we also discussed how pastors help keep each other accountable. <coughs> there of uh, cheerleader Blaine Say, come on, guys, we can do it. Let's get through it. And then finally, we discussed how pastors share in their equality. Now, even though there may be a first among equals, you know, one who is worthy of double honor because he preaches in the weekend and out, and he may make his living off preaching, they still share the same authority. So with that, let's look at this last image here. So my question is, this is, this is the platform, right? So my question is, the draws to a close is what kept the boats from drifting away? You got anger, what? What was it? The tree, what else? The rope? All those things. Remember how did our how did our verse end? The, remember 
three cords. Well, you guys ever see? You guys ever see a piece of rope? You know, if you look at a piece of rope, you'll find that it's a bunch of like ropes within the rope. You know, like they're braided. That you're all wrong. The rope didn't. I mean, the rope wasn't what kept all the the boats from drifting off. What kept the boats from drifting off was all three of us working together. Because if we didn't work together, if it was just one of us, we would have never arrived at the platform and we would have just drifted back to that cornfield, planted our tent, and slept there in our misery and never been able to enjoy that beautiful sight or those beautiful sounds. The, the braided cord, the braided rope, was the three of us working together. And it provides a nice image, the number three, and God is, you know, God is Trinity. Um, that doesn't mean that you only have three elders. You can have many of the church needs or many are, are called. But the image there is kind of a nice parallel of what we're seeing going on in this church right now. But that close of our text just gives us not only an image of, of equality, of, of you know, not being able to tell the difference between the different braided cords, but when we look back at the story that I shared with you, we understand that, yes, in, in a way, the tree and the platform and the cables kept the boats from floating away, but the real reason that they never went adrift is because the three of us were working together. We were sharing each other's burdens, and we were keeping each other accountable. But someone mentioned one other thing, though, that kind of puts a nice little twist to this. They mentioned an anchor. They never said we had an anchor. But it's interesting that you mentioned that because the very culmination of this narrative that I shared with you is that you guys can recall one of the images we've been using for the sermons of fellowship is what? The ship. And that's you guys, the Lord of God Christian Fellowship. Everyone's in there rowing together. And if you need to keep the, the ship from drifting away, what do you do? You throw the anchor. Well, the anchor is attached to the boat by what? The rope, right? Your elders. So what's the anchor? Well, the anchor is Christ. Because Christ is who keeps the church anchored by the power of the Spirit. So if you can close your eyes and pray with me, in gratitude for that anchor, and that God has gifted us to be this fellowship and to keep us from going astray by providing us with these leaders who shepherd us by teaching. Father, we're so grateful, Lord, that you have given us, uh, you've given the church people who serve you, who love you, who have a great task of being accountable for, for those sheep, Lord, that they're called uh, to the impossible, Lord, to model the shepherding of Jesus, the same Jesus who uh, reached out, Lord, uh, to, to the depraved and the injured and the diseased and the impoverished in the world that clean the feet of, of what we redeem and worthy Lord from the adulterous woman to the tax collector. That same Jesus, Lord, is our anchor and is the model of what we wish to exemplify in the office of pastors. Thank you, Lord, that you have provided the office of pastors to that elders themselves, Lord, may have a source of refuge uh, among, among one another, Lord, that they can appeal to one another to keep each other accountable and to sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron. Father, we give you thanks for your beloved church and pray that you may speak to our hearts uh, this week. And Lord, if we don't have Christ as our anchor, then no matter how many ropes we throw in the water, we are led astray. And we 